everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is show number 16 for Wednesday, December 9th, 2009. And once again, I'm Paul Fox. And I'm Kevin Stormdriver, Ma. What, what, is, what do you mean by that, Stormdriver? It, it's a plumbing reference. Plumbing reference? Yes, yes. You don't want to know. Okay. We will move on. Uh, but we are going to be talking about Storm Riders a little bit later in the show. Uh, this is the week that uh, this, the new sequel, The Storm Warriors, opens up. A lot of people are looking forward to that, myself included. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that in our next episode as well. But for now, uh, before we get to our main films we're going to talk about this week, let's get into some news. <laughs> So, Kevin, um, first bit of news we have this week is coming from um, from the local area. We're talking about the television station ATV, which is, for those of you living overseas, is sort of the one of the few TV stations here in Hong Kong. It is a competitor of the mighty TVB, which really holds the biggest piece of market share. Um, for those listeners in the States, you are very familiar with the big channels like NBC, ABC, CBS, and they're always competing and jockeying for position. Uh, ATV has been long looking to try and overthrow uh, the mighty TVB. So, Kevin, what is this story we have about uh, ATV? Yes, um, well, as uh, some of you might know, the talent show phenomenon has uh, hit Asia, started, I guess, with American Idol or in England with the Idol shows. Um, and TVB and ATV decide to start their singing show at the same time. So, uh, but while the TVB one is still going on, uh, called The Voice, uh, the ATV version, the Asian Million Star, which actually I think it's a copyrighted version, I think it's an official adaptation of the Taiwanese version of the show, has just ended. Now, this show has been especially important for the struggling ATV because it brought them back into nearly double-digit ratings, um, as in it actually stood a chance against, not really stood a chance against TVB, but it's gotten some of the biggest ratings uh, in, I think, this year. Mm. So um, the first edition just ended, and um, Addison Lowe, a uh, singer-songwriter uh, that many people compare to Jay Chow, um, won the three-hour... Uh, live finale last Sunday. Um, I'm not ashamed to admit that, yes, I do follow the show and I like the ATV version better because um, the ATV one knows how to um, essentially streamline the show while the, the, the TVB version is, one, a direct ripoff of the formula and, two, it's just being dragged on and on and on until January because they keep adding and, and, and deducting contestants and there's no personality with contestants even though they got more famous judges. So um, this Addison Lowe guy is actually quite um, quite a good singer, um, even though there's a lot of controversy with his win because um, he didn't perform very well in the finale, um, and that's where the scores all count. It's only in the finale. Um, meanwhile, uh, Sharko, Sharko Kang, the um, second-place winner, actually performed, was on top, actually uh, number one highest score through the entire show until the very end. So now people are trying to... Is wondering whether ATV uh, essentially rigged the show to try and promote Addison, who has been a fan favorite for a very long time, as the next star. Hmm. So you think there's a little bit of foul play going on in the selection process? Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised because this guy, um, because 5% of the final result um, counts on the viewers' votes. 
And while everyone got somewhere between 4,000 and 7,000 votes, this Addison Lowe guy got 50,000 votes. So he's been a very, he's been a, a fan favorite for a very long, long time. And ATV is obviously trying to please their audience. So I won't be surprised if <clears throat> ATV sort of um, behind the scenes decided that they had to essentially let this guy win. Otherwise, you know, there'll be 50, 60,000 people, you know, go against ATV. Right. And this guy is, again, his singing style is very much uh, styled after Jay Chow. And he's also very shy. Essentially, I think um, a lot of people say that he has to escape the shadow of Jay Chow to essentially be the next big thing. But the, the way his, his his mannerisms are, the the style of the songs that he performs the best in, it's going to be very, very tough. And also because TVB essentially has a monopoly on all the popular singers. So it's going to be very, very tough for ATV to try and promote music music stars because one they don't have the high ratings and two they he's not going to get the exposure he needs that a tv that a tvb connected um or tvb contracted singer would get well i think what they need to do is bring back william hung oh of course of course <laughs> william hung was the is the old is the old school asian <laughs> asian idol that's yeah. amazing He's the forerunner. I mean, but seriously, do these shows run in that sort of mean-spirited format that uh, American Idol runs in? Um, nowhere near as mean. Um, Marie, uh, actually, this while while uh, TVB version because they got um more famous uh guest um judges, so there are more I guess who would you call more successful professionals. Um, and they have been sort of mean, but in the ATV version, they got Maria Cordero. Um, they got. Lao Yi Dot, which is great. Um, and and you know, they're they they've been sort of halfway between nice and mean, and it's not as mean spirited as the as a TVB version, but um they definitely lend a very pro- good professional voice to the show. Uh and you know, I like Marie Cordero, actually. She's a very good good judge. Oh, yeah, she's uh she's very well respected in yeah. in entertainment in general, not just not just singing. The uh, second season um, starts in January. They already said it. And um, yeah, so I look forward to seeing what kind of talent they dig out. All right, our next bit of news. Um, the classic film, John Woo film, A Better Tomorrow, is set to get a remake. Uh, Kevin, you want to give us a few more details on this story? Honestly, there is not much details out there. But um, as far as uh, news that's already out there, is that... Um, they are casting. They just recently cast a, a young cast. Um, sorry to be redundant. Um, and uh, the director of um, the film Phylon, uh, uh, which starred uh, Cecilia Chen, will be directing this um, so-called remake. Um, the story isn't very clear, but apparently it has something to do with a former North Korean special forces soldier that is trying to get forgiveness from his uh younger brother so um obviously you're it's already sounding like it's not going to be the the same similar story um honestly i don't know why they decided to call this a remake of a better tomorrow because i think north and south korean um intelligent agents doesn't really equate to the triads um but uh yeah um apparently the producers also emphasize that it's not going to be very very similar to the a better tomorrow so Again, I'm not sure why they're calling this a remake, but uh, are you looking forward to this, Paul? From what you read, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm. There, there seems to be a whole lot of quote-unquote remakes being thrown around these days, and I, I'm sort of thinking along the same lines that you are. In that, you know, if you're not really going to do a remake, if you're going to make it so different, 
that it just becomes sort of a based on kind of concept. Why call it a remake? If other than the fact that you're just trying to sort of ride the wave of the fame of that name that you're laying claim to. Yeah, the last film that, that did that was, uh, of course, Blood Brothers, which was uh, supposedly, again, a remake of Bullet in the Head. And it was produced by John Woo himself. But as we, we both, we haven't, you've seen Blood Brothers, right? If you remember, that wasn't really a Bullet in the Head remake. Yeah, yeah, not, not, uh, not really. Yeah. Well, we'll have to just wait and see. Maybe it'll be good. Um, I'm, yes, I'm, uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about the whole north-south north, aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll, well, we'll get to see it. In, uh, yeah, we'll get to see it in about a year. The film starts shooting in January. Yeah. Um, before we move on to East Screen, I do want to. I want to get your thoughts on the trailer that's bouncing around out there for the the Chinese noodle story. Uh, uh have, have you seen that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I actually, posted on my Facebook uh, under the description. Um, whatever, whatever Zhang Yimou is on, he should get off it. <laughs> Well, so this is the thing we were talking about a few weeks ago, the remake uh, or the homage to of uh, Blood Simple. Yes. Um, but the trailer just looks confusing. Um, the, the, the one that I've seen, and I'll try and post a link to this uh, on, on the site, it's like the first two-thirds of the trailer is like crazy, zany comedy. Mm-hmm. But then it gets kind of dark and it looks more like a murder mystery in the last third of the trailer. So I'm not really sure what to make of this. Um, what, what is your take on it? Having seen it, Kevin? Well, I've been told that the, the humor be very much mainland based, but honestly, I don't think much of that humor was um, even humorous. And Zhang Yimou has never sort of done this outright crazy comedy before. And he's never been. And, um, I don't know what to make of it. Honestly, it's a really strange film. And if you didn't tell me it was Zhang Yimou, I, I wouldn't know. I would think I would say it's a candidate for the worst film of the year already. Hmm. So it's, yeah, I have no idea what to make of it. I, in, in that way, I'm looking forward to it. But also, in a way, I'm really afraid of going to watch it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to read. I'm not really sure I'm watching a Wang Jing film or... Um, something that I'd expect to see um, Ronald Chang in you know, or, or something. But then, you know, you've got his name attached to it. And, of course, in the, in the you know, they're saying, oh, the, from the director of the opening to the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and then, you know, all these actors who've been in uh, movies recently, they're, they're really heavily promoting it based on the merits of the people who are in it. But then you see what they're doing on screen and it's like, what am I seeing? It's it's just really hard to read, um, but I definitely am gonna get out and and watch it, and uh, hopefully it'll be good. All right, let's jump into our East screen films this week. And 
in the light of jumping in, uh, our first film is going to be Jump. Um, so, Kevin, why don't you give us a little bit of synopsis of Jump and share some of your thoughts on it with us? Sure. Um, Jump is the third film from uh, actor-director Stephen Fung. It has a very troubled production history, as some of you might know. The film originally starred... Um, or not start because uh, the main lead, male lead, was going to be Edison Chen. So they finished the film, but then the uh, photo gate uh, scandal broke out, and the producer decided to force Stephen Fung to reshoot one third of the film. But um, surprisingly, the result actually doesn't really show. It still looks like a very completed film. And uh, but then after you watch it, you wonder what was the big deal? Um, because it has a very uh, simple and a very um, genre formulaic plot. Um, it stars Kitty Jung, who uh, had her first starring role in Stephen Chow's CJ7. Uh, she is essentially the, fail, the female lead here, carrying the entire film as a... Now, was the subtitles, was it Fong or Phoenix? Phoenix. you remember? Phoenix. Phoenix? Okay, yep. so Phoenix is, a, as the trailer says, a small town girl with big city dreams. Um, she uh is a girl in the village and she wants to get out of the village she wants to dance her way into the city and through a job offer from a factory she does she goes to the big city she goes to shanghai and um is eventually she gets to enroll in a dance school um and she learns how to dance and of course she finds love and of course there's the big dance competition at the end of the film now the male lead is um a rich guy um now played by an actor named, I think, Leon J. Williams. Um, not sure if I got the actor's name right. He plays a sort of rich playboy uh, who owns the dance school and finds this Cinderella character very charming. Um, so, of course, they fall in love and there's the prerequisite uh, romantic misunderstandings and things like that. Um, personally, I thought that I was actually afraid of going to see the film because um, the trailer didn't really give me a good impression. It looked... Um, like a very not funny but trying too hard to be funny Stephen Chow comedy, and I was pleasantly surprised at how um again sorry to be redundant how pleasant it was. Um, I was surprised that it didn't really quote unquote pander to uh to uh I guess the Chinese audience. Um, it was a very entertaining film even though the the plot offered no surprise. Um and. You know, the humor was okay. Um, the actors were okay. Kitty Jung actually was quite surprising as a female. She really did carry the movie quite well. And whoever was going to be the male lead, you know, it wasn't really a hard character to play anyway. So I think if they kept Edison Chan in, I think it wouldn't have made much of a difference. Or if they took out Edison Chan, it wouldn't make much of a difference. So for me, Jump was a, was a fine, it was okay movie. It was entertaining. It's a good hour and a half to spend in the theater. I laughed. I, I, was, I was entertained. So, but how about you, Paul? Did you like it more or less than I did? Well, uh, let's just say this. I wasn't about to jump for joy after <laughs> coming out of the theater. Um, I, in fact, did feel pandered to, um, mm. overly so. Mm. Uh, I, I went into this with a very open mind. I wasn't sure what to, to expect. I hadn't even seen a full trailer for it. I just knew Stephen Fung was directing. I like Stephen Fung as a director. Um, I was excited. I was excited to see it. Uh, I do agree with you that Kitty Kitty Zhang was okay. Uh, I think she did what was required to do in the role. My biggest problem with the film is that it is overly formulaic. 
it mm. is absolutely nothing that we haven't seen before. In fact, it's things we've seen before taken to extremes. So, you know, as you mentioned, you do have, you know, sort of the the bright lights, big city, you know, move the girl coming from, you know, the bumpkin character here once again. She she is a bumpkin. Um, she's naive. She's silly, you know, um, and she goes into moves into this into the city um, working in a factory. Conditions are, you know, are, are harsh, but she's sort of got this Pollyanna-esque, Pollyanna-esque you know, idea about her. You know, she's just happy and all she wants to do is dance. And that's all fine and good. Okay. So, but then you've got all these other elements um, that pop up, you know, um, the really rich, you know, the really rich guy, but, you know, he ends up having a relationship with this girl. Even though he's got a different girl, he's dating a different girl every night. He somehow manages to see her as the diamond in the rough. <laughs> um and then you then you've got you know uh, I don't want I don't want to give too many spoilers away but you've got a scene later in the film where she sees him with another girl she gets heartbroken um but then it, very predictably the girl turns out to be not what she thought that the the, the 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 girl's relationship to the guy turns out to be not what she thought it was it was just so predictable I, I was sitting there thinking immediately when I saw that scene I said okay I know who that is and nothing in the film up to that point had told me that, but this film was just so very formulaic. I knew exactly who that was, you know, because it was like it was like color by numbers, in the way that things were being put together, um, which was unfortunate. But you know, the the character of Phoenix herself um, is the same character that we've seen in countless Stephen Chow films up to this point, in that. Um, and, and, and that's one of the things I found interesting. I wonder how much of this film was actually Stephen Chow because he was the producer. I wonder how much of this was him with a somewhat heavy hand guiding Stephen Fong, uh, because these elements are so indicative of the things he's done. Uh, Phoenix herself, bumpkin girl. Um, you know, the, the actress herself, Kitty Zung is, she's a beautiful girl. They, they kind of dump her down a little bit, make her very dumpy and frumpy in the beginning um so the sweat lip. so the, yeah, okay. so, so they, they can make her bloom by the end of the film it's the same thing they did with Zhao Wei and in, in Shaolin Soccer it's the same thing they did with Karen Mock in God of Cookery um this is just you know the thing this is this is what he does um with, with these roles and so it was just too much of too, too many redundant cliches and and hooks that just really turned me off. It does have some funny moments, you know. Um, you know, I think the thing with the the, the scene with Daniel Wu uh, was was kind of gaggy and and ridiculous, mm -hmm. but it was funny for what it was. Um, some of the supporting characters, you know, they're very typical. She's got a fat friend, mm -hmm. um, you know, who's her best friend, and she's like tough when she needs to be. Also, um, a cross dresser, of course. Yeah, yeah. The, there's there's the there's always a guy dressed up as a girl and and actually the director director Fung makes a brief cameo at one point in the film and and you know most of that is okay then you get into the main theme of the film which is dance um and and that's what I was really interested going in to see you have this character this character who loves dance she does whatever she can to to learn sort of modern dance and modern dance steps 
Um, and and they should they highlight other aspects of dance in China very briefly. For example, there's a scene where um, she's out in a park, and all these old people gather together, and they start, you know, dancing. And and I've seen this. This is something that people actually do in in you know sort of town squares in China. Is they go out, they play music over a boombox or over a loudspeaker, and they get together and they dance. And it's it's really neat. It's an, it's a neat experience if you've never seen people just doing that in a public place. Um, it's not something that I, I think it's something they might have done in you know the U.S. you know back in the '40s and the '50s or something, but nobody would do that today, unfortunately. Um, it's an act, and it's an aspect of socialization that I think is is very interesting. But they don't really, I mean, they show that, but they don't really get into the the notions of that as a form of dance or other things as a form of dance. There, and of course, there's the kung fu tie-in, which is another aspect of many of Stephen Chow's films, you know, God of Cookery again, um, Shaolin Soccer. It's this aspect of taking one element, the element here being hip hop dance and somehow tying that back into Kung Fu. Um, and that, that ultimately builds up and plays out at the end, but it plays out in such a way that it doesn't really fit with what was going on. And I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the ending because the ending is a competition and what we're shown in sort of the final dance form, I, I look at and I go, no way. That that, that just wasn't all that good. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. For and, for a dance film. Yes, yeah, certainly. You know, the dance and, and, really is the weakest part. Yes. And, you know, um, I mean, some of the dance, uh, the, the rival dance team was was really awesome. I think that was an actual dance group that they that they brought in. I'm not sure. I don't follow dance that much. And and that was really good. But the, the things they tried to do with, you know, blending kung fu with dance it was just kind of weak i thought and it, mm -hmm. it that gave me the impression that this was kind of like an assignment that if you you know if you're if you're in school you, maybe you had an assignment that kind of went on a little bit too long and you hadn't put enough work into it but you had to you had to get it done you had to turn it in and you know it was kind of eh, but you were just happy to sort of say, okay, it's finished, it's done. I know it's not great, but if it passes, I'll, I'll be happy with it. Um, and, and that's sort of the sense I got from this film, that maybe all the trouble with the recasting and everything, which I do agree, you don't notice that here. If you would have never told me that they had that problem, uh, they did an, a good enough job with editing and, and reshooting and whatever, whatever they needed to do to make it so that that was not an, an apparent factor. Mm -hmm. um, but it by the end, you just get the sense that this is a film that was eh, kind of maybe cast off, uh, and they just said, okay, let's just do this for the ending, and that's it, and that's sort of the end of it. Um, mm -hmm. It's just not as solid as as the, the endings that you would see in like Shaolin Soccer or some of the other films that have this same formula. So it's not a bad film, um, but I would say it's the weakest of Stephen Fung's films to date. Um, I oh, would, yeah, I would sure, certainly definitely. recommend either of the other films, uh, House of Fury or Enter the Phoenix, before I'd rec recommend this one to anyone. This one uh, also has the element there of films like Step Up, Step Up 2, maybe the new version of Fame a little bit. Um, again, I'm not a real big modern dance, urban dance buff, so I don't, I don't engage in those films uh, that often, but... If you're somebody who's really interested in dance and, and dance is, a, is something that's really emerging 
in Asia with competitions and things, um, you might enjoy some of what goes on here and some of the initial choreography in the middle and towards the end. Um, that's actual dance choreography. I mean, they're not trying to do the blending thing. Is actually pretty good. It's it's filmed quite well. The cinematography is pretty good. And, and actually, yeah, actually, I probably should clear up that. I it's probably due to the fact that I saw I've seen a lot of really badly produced romantic comedies from China, like Love at Seven Sight. So actually, I was pleasantly surprised how subtle, or well, relatively subtle, or how toned down Stephen Fung's direction was. Um, it was fairly natural. There wasn't really abrupt editing. Um, it, it ran, like I said, quite naturally. The acting, the actors were quite likable. There was nothing that really annoyed me, especially after Kung Fu Hip Hop. If I had to choose between Jump and Kung Fu Hip Hop, I actually would end up choosing Jump. Yeah, well, I, I can, I, I would say that this film has definitely has higher than average production values. And that's one of the mm -hmm. one of the saving features. But, you know, there's just a lot here that's, it's just really, I don't know, it's just too formulaic for me. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, this is not a direction I want to see Stephen Fung going. I mean, Stephen, that we, Hong Kong already has a Stephen Chow, and you come to expect certain things from his style. Yeah. Um, and Stephen Fung's last two films, I think, were very unique and and sort of, you could see his own voice in that. In this, I just see the voice of Stephen Chow coming through, sort of over the shoulder, saying, "Do this here, do that, do that here, use this kind of character." And I think that's what kind of made me come away from this film disappointed. All right, let's move on and talk about our next East Screen film. And that is the China remake of the classic tale of Mulan. Um, Kevin, have you, uh, have you uh, seen any of the other versions of Mulan that's out there? Um... The only one I've seen is the Disney version. Yeah, uh, there's which a... sadly, uh, which sadly after this, I still prefer the Disney version. <laughs> well, there's a couple versions out there. There, you've got the Disney version, which is the most famous. And we're going to talk about that in in relation to this film in just a moment. Um, there's a Shaw Brothers film, uh, the Legend. I think it's called the Legend of Mulan that came out back in the '70s. I want to say, I think there's been a couple TV series too, uh, based on the character, but this is sort of the most current version um, coming out of China uh, that tells the story. If you're not familiar with the story, it's basically based on a poem, which is somewhat based on, supposed to be based on, on history. Um, but I guess if you're going to attribute this to the West, it's kind of like Beowulf, whereas Beowulf was, has a lot of, you know, magic and monsters in it. Um, that the, the, the poem of Mulan or, or the story of Mulan here. Um, has been retold over the, over the years, and we got the Disney version of it. So now we have a version coming from China, telling the story of a young daughter who, when is it, her family is called to service, um, her father is ill, so out of filial duty or filial piety, she secretly runs off with his armor and his sword and takes his place in the army. She is able to work her way into positions of prominence, um, and ultimately become a general, defeating, you know, the invading hordes from the north, and ultimately, you know, winning honor for herself. And by the end of the war, once the war is over, she returns back to her father and takes up her place uh, as a girl again. Um, so this is 
sort of the premise of the story, if you haven't seen it or heard of it before, um, has a lot to do with gender, gender relations and positions, especially in, in this older period of China. Um, so Kevin, why don't you start off and tell us a little bit about your thoughts on this film? Do you think it was a successful retelling of this narrative? No, I, I think not at all, because you were saying earlier just now that the Mulan story is about gender and the role of females in war and, you know, something like gender relations in the army. But none of that carries into the film. It's at no point does Vicky Jia, who plays uh, Mulan here, is ever convincing as a woman trying to pretend to be a man. You say, just see this woman with full-on makeup standing in the middle of the battlefield. And you wonder how can no one ever catch her? Yeah. And well, the whole is, thing is that it, 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 it all becomes an afterthought by the time it, it is sort of brought back by the end of the film. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting point that um I don't know, I didn't really dwell on that too much, but now that you bring it up, yeah, they didn't really there wasn't a, an attempt to really masculinize her in any way. Um to, to, but at the same time you've got a lot of very gritty um, sort of washed out cinematography going on to try and give you this sense of realism of that time period, um, mm -hmm. which I think is a, is in some ways detrimental to the film. Um, but let me let me get back to your thoughts on on this and on some of the things that the director Jingle Ma, um, who's done films like Silverhawk and and lots of other work before. Um, what do you what do you think was primarily some of the some of the things that didn't work in this adaption. Mm, I think, well, one, the problem about that Vicky Jiao is never convincing or the, the, the whole central idea of Mulan is never convincing in this film. And also the way, the way the battle scenes are shot, it's that it's very derivative. Um, you just got the basic, you know, close-ups of really uh, a, a, a big crowd, crowd of people just running into each other and, and, and stabbing stuff into each other. It's, just it brings nothing new to the to the war genre at all, and it and also it, the the love story between the two is uh, between Chen Kun and also uh, and Vicky Zhao. To me, just I didn't really feel between them. Um, for me, none of none of the stuff that we see it, it really convinces. It's all really superficial. And while the actors are fine, um, they try their best. Uh, especially J C Chan, who is kind of the thankful or the thankless uh, best friend role here. They all tried their best here and uh also i know the cinematographer uh um tony uh tony learn uh sorry, tony john he they all tried their best here but the problem is within the script and also the fact that jingle mod is more interested in delivering these following these formulas commercial formulas rather than really telling um a convincing story mm -hmm. And the yeah. problem is that the fact that we saw the dynasty, um, usually we, we watch films at the dynasty for films that are so bad that it's enjoyable to watch. But for me, Mulan was just really just hum, whole hum bad. Yeah. It, just, it wasn't bad enough to inspire, to inspire ridicule. Yeah, I, I know that, that there's a lot of people who are, particularly people in China, because the film itself didn't do well, who are very critical of the Disney version of Mulan. Um, but that for me was one of my favorite Disney films because for me, it was at long last, here's Disney finally turning their eye, um, you know, to, um, East Asia, uh, you know, it, it getting away from the European fairy tales and, and starting to broaden out. Um, 
you know, and, and they had done Aladdin uh, some years earlier, but, you know, I had always been interested in East Asia and China in particular. So I was very happy when I heard, read the news that they were making this film. And I, and I liked the film. I mean, despite the corniness, despite the, you know, the, the Disneyfication or the globalization aspects that you want to talk about, um, I think that in, in Disney making that film, it was, they were in a tough position because even though they got lots of Asian American actors to do the voices of many of the characters, um, even though that they were working on working from very traditional designs and some of the animation style, they still got a lot of criticism from Asian Americans and Asians abroad, but the film did very, very well. Um, and it left a very strong impression um, in the minds of, of many people for that character. It sort of brought that character to the front. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. But for me, one of the things that I think about when I think about this character, and one of the things that I, well, I think was somewhat reflected in, in the Disney version, is that I get the sense of this person being clever, being um, a tactician, being a leader, you know, being mm-hmm. have, having having a sense of charisma, and I got none of that here from right. um, Zhao Zhao's Vicky Zhao's portrayal. Um, we get a lot of scenes of her crying, um, and yes, war is an emotional thing, and and I think that there was one nice scene that I liked, which when which she has to sort of kill her first enemy, and I think that yeah, that can be a very, you know, tense experience, and that can really change a person, obviously. But beyond that, I mean, it was like it, it, in this film, it seemed to be every other scene, um, someone was crying, um, <laughs> you know, and I was I was like, you know, I was thinking back to Tom Hanks and in the um, uh, what was the what was the baseball movie he did? Uh, League of Their Own. Yeah, League of Their Own. You know, and he's like, there's no crying in baseball. I want to say there's no crying on the battlefield. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it's <laughs> like at some point, at some point, I figured she would have gotten hardened to a point and she would have just said, okay, this is the job. This is what I've got to do. But it was, it was, I don't know. It was very emo for me. This, yeah. this was like an emo version of Mulan. Um, and, and as you were mentioning with the battle scenes, there wasn't a lot of attention paid to the battle scenes. They were very lackluster. Um, there, the, the choreography was, you know, a lot of wide shots. So you can't really see a lot that's going on. Um, that's not what, I got the impression that director Ma was trying to focus on what he spends a lot of time on is two shots and close-ups of these characters engaged in dialogue, dialogue that's spoken very, very slowly. I'm certainly no expert in Mandarin, but I've heard enough people speak Putonghua and, and different dialects of Mandarin to know that they don't speak that slowly. <laughs> and, and you know, that they were just dragging on these dialogue scenes to try and sort of pull out the emotional content. And I think that that might have worked if the film had been colored differently, if the film had a different cinematic approach. But because mm. it was sort of washed out, everything was sort of, you know, desert and and dry and had this look of of sand and dirt to it. That you want it was, to look like the warlords? Well, yeah, but there was and and because of that, there's not there's not a lot of interesting things to to see. So the dialogue doesn't keep your attention. The imagery is not keeping your attention. I kept thinking he should have thought he should have shot this film with aspects of color in mind. You know, something like Hero 
or you know a, a film that's got a lot more vibrance to the shot itself to keep you drawn into this picture because what's going on in terms of the dialogue ain't doing it um mm-hmm. at least it wasn't doing it for me mm-hmm. so that and the combination is uh, as we mentioned the fact that this is not a movie about tactics it's not a movie about you know strategy and battles it's a movie about betrayal and it's a movie about deception and you, you know you do have these and you know the these invading um people who would eventually become you know the the mongols later um the, the it's, i think it's the Rorun army uh coming in and attacking the way kingdom which is the kingdom that uh Zoe and her comrades are fighting to defend um all of that is just it's just not very engaging the other thing that i think that the disney film actually did and it's very formulaic in doing it but they needed to do it here is that you've got all these sub characters like you mentioned you've got jc chan you've got other characters with very typical names like fatso and scholar um but the director never spends enough time on with them so whereas in the disney mulan you've got you know you've got sort of these core three characters who each have their own personality and are each fairly well developed through the course of the film. You get to know them, you get to relate to one of them that you really like here. They don't do that. You, you, you meet one by the time you know his name, you know, he gets hacked up in the next scene and everybody's sad except you because you haven't had enough time to grow an attachment to this character. Yeah. Um, Actually, back to your uh, back to the cinematography thing, if I could. Um, Jingle Ma, it's a cinematographer, and uh, but the thing is, he has this obsession with soft focus, and I don't remember correctly. Now, correct me out if anyone uh, out there can uh, wish to, but I don't remember Jingle Ma ever making a, a colorful film. Um, I remember that uh, Happy Birthday was all gray and white. Yeah. Um, uh, the rest of his films are all obsessive soft focus and and sterile white and i think the same here the color is always very flat yeah silver uh, silverhawk was kind of had that that star Tre- star trekky futuristic ster- sterility to it if i remember correctly yeah so i never even enjoyed really jingle ma as a cinematographer and uh whatever i think the look of the film uh successful or not i think it's completely uh his fault sadly yeah. um and also like you said he, he, she's not um vicky Zhao was never really convincing as a leader um at one point um she, one during one of the retreats where uh vicky Zhao sort of sits back as a where she she ignores her troops my girlfriend leaned to me and she says she's probably having she's probably on her period <laughs> it is like like this is she's never convincing as a leader and the one scene where she's um acting as a as a tactician like she goes on like this three minute rant on her plan i'm just like wait can you say that again yeah like you're never really convinced at anything in this film yeah unfortunately i think it was he would he, he was more focused on the character study aspect which could have been interesting had it been shot differently and had they maybe brought in a, a different actress possibly i'm 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 wondering i'm speculating that i think one of the reasons that they got her for this film was because of her role in Redcliffe. Mm. Um, and the character that you see in Redcliffe, I think would, would have made a much better Mulan than the character that we're given here. Um, even yeah. though that character is a bit more, you know, a, a bit more of a sort of a spitfire, um, you know, short temper tomboyish character. I think that's, that that's more yeah, of the Mulan. essence of Mulan 
as yeah. I would imagine it, than uh, what we're given here. Yeah, um, and of course, there's one thing we need to talk. We we need to mention is the presence of the Russian singer Vitus. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, let me let me uh, mention an article uh, that came out in Time Magazine this past week. Um, the name of the article is uh, China versus Disney, uh, the battle for Mulan. And I'll put a link to this article. Um, but basically, it's talking about the, the new film and how this is sort of China's push to reclaim uh, their legend. And as uh, if I can just read from a couple interesting points from the article. It says, although it was too American for audiences in China, where it performed abys abysmally, Disney's Mulan was a smash hit in the rest of the world, where it reeled in 300 million. That didn't sit well with some Chinese, inclu including uh, Guo Xu, executive president of Starlight International Media Group, an entertainment company based in Beijing, who says, we commit ourselves to be a media with a sense of national responsibility. Um, this was in an interview with the People's Daily says that now that foreigners can produce a popular movie out of the story of uh, Hua Mulan, why can't we Chinese present its own to the world? Um, which is, I think is a fine sentiment, you know. It would be, be, be like, you know, China trying to make a movie about, you know, George Washington that does really well, you know, around the world um, and puts any, any, you know, American attempts at it to shame. And then America, would, I'm sure somebody, some filmmaker somewhere would have a sense that, hey, you know, that's, that's sort of our history. We've got to sort of get a hold of that, a hold, a hold of that again. Um, but one of the things that they talk about and that you were just mentioning, Kevin, is this guy Vitus, who I had never heard of. Um, we, we were having big fun with his, with his name, but he's a Russian, Russian entertainer, apparently. And the article says that there is a foreign presence even in this Chinese attempt to take back its own. The Russian entertainer Vitus, or is it Vitas? I'm not sure. Vitas, I believe. Uh, yeah. Vitas, yeah. Plays the role of a singer from a distant land held hostage by the nomadic and militant Ruran tribe, which is set on invading Chinese territory. The casting choice, Ma explained, was a simple marketing decision. Starlight International represents Vitus, Vitus in China, and who knows, the Russian actor could be the key to the new Mulan's conquest of foreign audiences. Take that, Disney. I doubt it. And actually, he's he's like, what, in, in two or three scenes? And he, he opens the movie. Yeah, he he's opens, like the one he man. opens the yeah, movie. He, and we yeah, he were does just... Us. I, I mean, we were just sitting in the audience in our jaws, just kind of like, what? Are we, you know, we were like looking at each other. Are we watching the, the right movie? What's this? What's this foreign guy doing there? And yeah, and, for and, anyone who uh, who needs to, who wants to know, is that the first shot of the film is this Vitas character standing on top of a hut, uh, doing like a one-man Greek chorus of his signature falsetto, yeah. and sort of just extending his hand up to a, to the to the camp or the war camp or something. It was, yeah, it was very very strange it was, opening. It was very odd, and it, in a, in a way, it does sort of make sense. Um, you know, in the context of the, the time period and, and, you know, borders and things like that, that perhaps there would be, um, you know, a prisoner like this. But they never really get into explaining that until much later in the film. Um, so you're just kind of left with question marks over your head as to, you know, what was that scene? What, what did that mean? Um, so, yeah, I, the, you know, this, this foreign presence is going to enable them to... Uh, Take on Disney. What do you think, Kevin? 
um, if if um, a castrated Russian singer is all it needs to take down Disney, Disney wouldn't have survived for this many years. Yeah. So, let's face it. Well, the article says that there have been there have been other attempts. They said that in two thousand and three, there was talk of a version starring Michelle Yeoh and Chow Yun Fat, and I remember hearing that rumor. Um, I guess it never materialized. In 2006, uh, the Weinsteins announced a big-budget Mulan film that would star Zhang Ziyi. Um, I don't know if that it doesn't say if that's still in production or that's been put on hold or that's been canned. Um, but I'm hoping that this is not the last version of Mulan we'll see for the next decade um, because it's it's sadly it's just not very good. Um, I I went into it somewhat excited again this was a story i was really looking forward to seeing and just didn't have anything anything to sort of draw me in yeah sorry um starlight entertainment if um a movie with red dragon telling the most famous story from your country is still the best best rendition of a story you're failing <laughs> yeah there's a need to definitely need more eddie murphy if anything lots more mushu all right, that's it. Dishonor. Dishonor on your whole family. Make a note of this. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Dis Shut up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just nervous. I've never done this before. Time to move on to our West Screen pick of the week, and that is the new animated film, Nine. Uh, this is coming out of the U.S. Um, now, Nine tells the story of um, sort of a post-apocalyptic world, although the time period seems set in maybe the 1950s. Um, so it's sort of an alternative alternative universe and the film is borrowing heavily from uh design elements from things like the matrix um from things like fallout uh, the video game series um but basically the story opens with this little doll who kind of looks like Sackboy from uh the, the ps3 game i think it's a little big planet or um there's a video game where with, with these like sack like doll characters um, so the, 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 the character is very reminiscent of that. And this character comes to life. And so um, a good portion of the movie is journeying, journeying along with this character to find out, um, who he is, why he's a living doll and basically what happened to the planet, because he's on a, on a place where there's cars and there's buildings and there's people, there's bodies. Um, so it's a little bit of a very typical sort of quest. He ultimately meets up with um, other dolls and he finds that they all have numbers and his uh, on their backs and he is number nine and that's the name that he goes by and he ultimately meets eight other doll characters and they 
ultimately have to go on a quest to try and find out um, who they are and and how they came to be. And this leads them into a confrontation with other animated machines that are out there that are big and mean and scary, composed of things like skeletons and, and steel knives and all kinds of different uh, scrapyard contraptions. So uh, the, film, the film itself is visually very nice, um, and I think the story is, is fairly engaging. Uh, it's a little bit frightening in a few places. I think that if you were thinking of taking uh, somewhat younger children to this, it might be there are a couple of scares in this film, that, um, and, a, and a couple of the, the animatronic or the, the, the villains, if you will, these, these machine villains that come to life. Um, because they're compo composed of bones and skeletons and things, that could be pretty frightening for younger children. So this is something that I think is geared more at the young teenagers um, and, and teen group more than anyone else. Although I did enjoy most of the story up until I'd say the last 15 minutes or so. And then the story just kind of made me start scratching my head going, what? I don't, I don't understand. Um Kevin, you've seen nine. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on this? Actually, I think uh, in terms of which part that I like better, um, I'm the other way around. I like the second half better than the first half because for me, the first half of the film is very repetitive. Um, it's, it's, you know, puppet, they they meet, they see more of their, their tribe, monsters show up, they run away, more show up, monsters show up again, they run away. It was very repetitive until the plot really started to un unveil what's the 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 background the history of the world yeah um for me it's it will make a, the first half of the film make a really good video game but it, it wasn't a very convincing movie for me but i could see why they chose that kind of structure because i've seen the the short film that director shane ecker he first made it was a, a nominee for an academy award have you seen it paul uh, I, have, I have not seen it no okay so the short film is essentially just one of the escape scenes where um, nine overcomes um, the monster and you get the similar ending to what now the, the film, how the film ends right now. Um, so I could see why when they came with the feature film, they had to sort of, they wanted to sort of follow that structure or where they had to or not, whatever, um, where they would have to make all these chasing bigger than the short film. Um, so while I understand, it's not something I really enjoy because by the time you get to about the third chasing, you're, you just started to feel repetitive. Yeah. So I was very thankful when they started actually getting into the background uh, of the world. But the thing is that they they raised a lot of questions about the world. They they raised a lot of um, curious. It makes the audience curious curious about the world, but it never really answered anything um, con concrete. Maybe they were setting up for a sequel. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Um, but it is a very interesting attempt at a, a animation for young adults. It's kind of a narrow demographic there. It's too scary for children, but it might not be um, mature enough for, for adults. So it's a very interesting attempt at, at hitting that middle demographic for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like you said, the visual is very good. Um, the acting is okay. Elijah Wood was doing the Lord of the Rings Frodo thing, uh, which was okay. Um, the character designs was interesting. and. Even though the, I didn't really enjoy the plot, I thought uh, what Ecker was most successful at was creating individual characters among these nine dolls. Yeah, I think um, 
I would agree with that, and I but I would also I would also agree with your point that it it does feel very video gameish, in in quite a few places, and I don't know maybe that's part of the problem that I had with it is that it set this one kind of pace, up until the end, and then there's this big reveal, of you know where the dolls came from, why they are what they are, and that to me just kind of I don't know it. it it's very metaphysical in in mm-hmm. in the explanation which is fine but then by the end they do this i don't want to give anything away they, there's this thing that they do at the end and i'm it just left me scratching my head because from from the explanation that was given you know um they were part of this overall plot they were part of the, the the sort of overall scheme of everything that's happening they have a they have a role in that and then i don't know it just seems like that they just decided to do this other thing and th- this thing they do is sort of very traditional and very very typical and it just didn't really make sense to me at that point um hmm. and and yeah based on who they were and how they were connected i i just didn't understand um why they could do why they could go in the direction they did. It, it didn't seem to really make sense to me. And again, it's, it's tied back to this sort of metaphysical concept that is being used, which I think as a concept was fine. I had no problem with that. I just had a problem with the way they ended things more than mm-hmm. anything else. And I think that that's what ultimately brought the film down. Um, I was very interested. I mean, in the, in the beginning part, I was very interested in the world and I was interested in, in, in the, 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 the different sack boys and, um, you know, they each had they each had their own their own like personalities, as you said, and I think that was sort of done very well. And ultimately, this comes out very much like a sort of a fantasy in a way, sort of like Lord of the Rings, where you've got all these different characters with you know different abilities and different strengths and different weaknesses, and they have to work together uh, to get to this place and to do this thing. And ultimately, that's done. But then there's this other element that sort of throws things off track, at least for me. All right, well, it's time to move on. Uh, This week we're going to do something a little bit different where we would normally have our Flying Buddha Picks of the Week. Today we're going to talk about a couple video picks um, in light of the release of Storm Warriors tomorrow. We're going to talk a little bit about Storm Riders and Storm Riders um, Clash of Evils, which is the animated Storm Riders film that came out uh, a few years back. So, Kevin, why don't you start us off and... Share with us some of your thoughts about um, Storm Riders. Uh, where did you, did you originally see this in a cinema, or what was your first sort of experience with this? And what what do you think of the film as a whole in general? Um, I remember watching this film during a trip back to Hong Kong. I think nineteen ninety eight wasn't it when it came out. Summer nineteen ninety eight. <clears throat> I watched it at a very very cold cinema, uh, UA Times Square. I remember the film was very loud, but I enjoyed it so much that I ended up buying the pirated VCD back to America. Oh, and I Kevin. watched the film about... I'm sorry. You, you, that was 10 years. You, you, Statue of Limitations, Paul. Okay. Statue of... All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll give yes. you that. 
Thank you. I have the. I, I actually I ended up paying. Uh, my parents ended up paying forty dollars U.S. for the legit DVD later on. So, so as a Storm Riders fan, it is, yeah. it is so especially you're, you're redeemed. Yes, I'm redeemed, and I well then again I did watch the pirated VCD version, which was uh based off a Malaysian version of the film, um or Philippines version of the film. I watched it five six times, um and I watched it maybe four or five more times on DVD, and it's one of those really revolutionary films into Hong Kong cinema history. I think um it was one of the first films to feature so much special effects, and I never read the comic, but I was, um and I don't know what what, what I was thinking. I was really impressed with the film. Even though Andrew Lau has sort of taken that MTV direction and sort of went overboard uh, over the last few years, I it was a really sort of a milestone film for me as a Hong Kong film fan. Um, so which which means I was really excited when they decided to do Storm Storm Warriors uh, Storm Warriors or Storm Riders Two, and it's always sort of stayed with me this sort of franchise, and I always wish they would do a sequel. So I'm very happy they're doing it again. Um, as far as how I now view the film 10 years later, like I said, the Andrew Lau style has sort of gone overboard. So now that I watch these sort of MTV editing style, I'm a little annoyed. Um, but nevertheless, it still remains a very entertaining film for me. And I went out and bought the remastered version even on DVD. Um, so it should show how how big of a fan I am. As Storm Riders the film, I've never read the comic, sorry. So mm. I don't know if what, like you said, I think Paul before we recorded, he said that many Storm Riders fans actually don't like the film. Yeah, right? well, that's what uh, the people that I've talked to and, and some things that I've read, um, if if you're not familiar with the, the Storm Riders um, beyond the film, um, it is based on a comic. So like any movie that's based on a comic, whether it's Iron Man or Spider-Man or Batman, there's going to be a core group of very hardcore fans, people who've collected all the comics, who know all the stories, who know all the characters, all the subplots and everything, who go into a film and there's always going to be something that's cut, something that falls short, um, a, a characterization that they don't think is accurate. And so that's going to lead to a lot of disappointment for people. And I, I as a fan, I've there have certainly been films that I've gone into having read a book or read a comic book and seen and felt that the film didn't do justice to the original media form, whatever that may have been. Uh, but much like you, I had originally seen Storm Riders. I, I wasn't in Hong Kong at the time. I believe I was in uh, Tallahassee uh, studying at FSU, and I got a copy on DVD, a legit copy. And I, um, I had ordered it and watched it, and I, it just blew my mind. Because even though I'd been watching films, Hong Kong films, for about a decade by that point, this was the first thing that I'd seen that was really a very high-budget production attempt to sort of utilize modern, up-to-date special effects. It, it was, for the 90s, what Soy Hark's... Um, Zoo Warriors. Zoo Warriors, Zoo Warriors uh, yeah. from the Magic Mountain. I have yeah. the DVD right here, so... Okay. Um, well, basically what that was back in the 80s, uh, where they had brought people in from Hollywood to teach some of the contemporary special effects of that period, um, Storm Riders was for the 90s, and you, it was the first real big attempt to do a, a big blockbuster. And for I was, again, I, I said I was blown away. Yeah, I've, I've seen the film multiple times. I watched it again this week sort of the, as a refresher to get back in the mood, to get, back, get ready for tomorrow's screening. And it holds up surprisingly well. There's there's definitely some visual elements that 
you know, you can kind of look at and go, wow, that's um, kind of dated now. But overall, I think that it's a solid story, solid characterizations. Um, it's got a very good dynamic that I think worked in the comic in that you've got these two characters, um, the, the, the wind character who's played by Ikan Chang. Um, he's sort of the nice guy. And you've got the cloud character played by Aaron Clock, who's the bad boy. Um, and so you're going to be, you're, you know, you're going to choose one of one of the two sides as to somebody that you identify with. And that's a strategy that works in a lot of sort of duo films. And it works well here. And I think both of the actors were good choices and, and did their roles fairly well. Um, the other thing that I was very surprised at in going back and watching it is um, the number of people that at the time when I originally watched it, I wasn't very familiar with, but you go back and you watch and you go, oh, yeah, Michael Say's in this film. Um, oh, yeah, Anthony Wong's in this film. Oh, yeah, Shu Chi's in this film. Um, I had just forgotten because back when I saw it, I wasn't quite as familiar with a lot of those people as I am today. So it was, a, it was an interesting refresher. I think that seeing Sonny Chiba uh, as a fan of some of his old Street Fighter films and um, a lot of the work that he did, uh, it was it was very nice to see him sort of uh, in a role. But my biggest problem with the film, and it's a problem that I think I'll never be able to get out get over, is some of the dubbing uh, that goes on. Uh, Sonny Chiba is obviously dubbed, and uh, mm-hmm. that tends to actually regarding regarding Sonny Chiba's dubbed. Yeah. yeah, regarding Sonny Chiba's dubbed, that was actually the best that remains the best dubbing job of a foreign actor I've seen in Hong Kong film. Yeah, it's it I mean it is a good job, but it's I don't know, it's still uh I'm I'm very I'm very sensitive to dubbing. I just I don't know, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. But yeah, I will admit that here it is done um done quite well. Um Alex Fong you know is in it playing uh uh he's uh Wynn's father and it's just got some really really good um really good exciting performances, um, some good fight scenes, um, and a very, very good uh, liberal use of CG at the time, and it looked it looked really good. Now, that being said, obviously, the film has left uh, a lot to be, you know, a big shoes to fill. There's a lot to live up to with the sequel, and we'll be talking in our next episode um, about Storm Warriors and some of our thoughts on our expectations and uh, whether we are, whether those expectations are met or we're disappointed. Um, there is another film out there that we can talk about, and that is the animated film that came out a few years ago, Stormrider's uh, Clash of Evils. Now, Kevin hasn't seen this. Is that correct, Kevin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen this. Um, I've seen it, and I can say that it's, if you're a fan of Stormriders or you're a fan of animation, it is very entertaining. Uh, animation quality is fairly good. Uh, it it's somewhat true to the style of Hong Kong comics, um, which is a very unique style in and of itself. If you've never um, read any Hong Kong comics, um, you might look at it and say, you know, these characters don't really look Chinese in, in design or, or, or have, a, have a particularly strong sense of an Asian aesthetic, but that is because they are following very strictly the, the, the Hong Kong art style for Hong Kong comics, which itself is related in some ways to um to japanese animation but it's very distinctive in and in and of itself as it's emerged over the past two decades so 
it's not something, it's not a film I would recommend for everybody, but if you did see the first film, Storm Riders, and you like it, and you're not opposed to seeing animated films, um, you might want to pick up Clash of Evils. What will be interesting to see is how Storm Warriors um, continues the storyline. If it's just going to sort of uh, pick up immediately after the film as the animated film did and do a completely different storyline or um, or what some of the plot points will be. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next episode. Um, now, Kevin, anything anything else you wanted to add about uh, Storm Riders? No, anything um, about Storm Riders will be left to tomorrow, I think, before we watch the film. Yeah. So, um, I'm really excited, actually. Um, what I'm interested to see what Prang Brothers will do with their biggest budget to date. Yeah, so. that's, it's going to be interesting to see how they... Because um, they have a different visual style than Andrew Lau, and you can you can get that from a lot of that from the trailer. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see their take on it. It'll be interesting to see how the two actors, how Aaron and Eakin, uh, do these roles being 10 years older. Um, you know, is, is that going to have an effect on them? Um or on the audience reception, um, I don't know. Maybe it, it may be it may maybe too late for a film like this for Hong Kong cinema. We'll just have to uh, wait and see. I do. Yeah. I we can we can say that there was an attempt to, there was sort of a follow up attempt um, in this same type of vein with a man called Hero, um, which was also based on a Hong Kong comic book series. Um. um a few years back, or not, a few years like the year, the, actually like, the year right after Storm Riders. Was it? Was it the year after? Yeah, um, yeah and yeah. it was nowhere near as as good. And my part of my problem with that film, and we can talk about that more another time, was I had read the comics for that series. So when I saw it, I was very very disappointed with uh, a lot of the things that got left out and the portrayal of certain characters that I liked and things like that. So. Uh, I had a very different experience with that film based on the fact that I had read the comics than with Storm Rider. So I can sympathize with people who, those people who are probably big fans of the comics and who were disappointed somewhat. But now, uh, as special effects movie goes, um, I've heard a rumor out there. Um, I'm not sure about the whether it's true or not, but that Andrew Lau is actually with Storm Riders and to a lesser degree, a man called Hero is actually a very poor special effects uh, director. Because what I've heard is that the uh, people who worked on the special effects for Storm Riders had to essentially spend months redoing all the shots because Andrew Lau didn't know how to direct people in front of a blue screen. He would set them too close to the blue screen or he would light them wrongly. Or And, and people in Central really had a hard time uh, actually doing the special effects for the film. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, 11 years later, hopefully... Um, the new technology will hopefully make a difference. And right now, the trailers are suggesting really good things, I think.
right, well, that's going to wrap things up for this week. Uh, we will be back next time with a special episode to talk all about uh, Storm Warriors. So until then, um, if you'd like to follow along with what's going on, you can always catch up with us at uh, our main website, uh, concast.com. That's www.kong-cast.com. And if you'd like to follow along with Kevin and the things that he's doing over the holiday, uh, you can check out his blog over at the lovehongkongfilm.com website. And you can follow him on Twitter. And your Twitter account is, once again, Kevin? The Golden Rock, one word. Yeah, so you can look him up there. And uh, we will be, we're, we'll, we'll be having another episode, hopefully coming out uh, fairly shortly, episode 17. That will be a special episode. Uh, after that, I will be off out and about for the holidays. Um, Kevin and I will try and get together at some point to talk about some of the holiday films like Avatar and some of the stuff that he's going to be seeing here in Hong Kong while I'm stateside. But we're not quite sure how the logistics of that are going to work out at this time, but uh, we hope you will stay tuned. And until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Yeah, that's I, I just love that last line. Like, take that Disney. We've got we've got Vitus and we're gonna conquer the world with Vitus in the cast. Well, Paul, you know who else shops at Pacific Place? You know who else? Uh, who's that? Michael Wong. Oh so we should definitely go to Pacific Place more often. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And he has his own car. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little bit of a uh, overheard reference for people who've seen the film. <laughs> <laughs>